Hello and welcome to Do The Film Thing, a film appreciation and analysis podcast. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, and this is episode 7 of season 1. In this audio essay, we will explore Martin Scorsese's 1985 feature film After Hours, a Kafkaesque comedy starring Griffin Dunn, Rosanna Arquette, Linda Florentino, Terry Garr, John Hurd, and Verna Bloom. In a 1991 New York Times article from Ivana Edwards titled The Essence of Kafkaesque, Edwards interviews a Franz Kafka biographer, Frederick R. Carl, who defines the term Kafkaesque, stating, quote, What's Kafkaesque is when you enter a surreal world in which all your control patterns, all your plans, the whole way in which you have configured your own behavior, begins to fall to pieces when you find yourself against a force that does not lend itself to the way you perceive the world. You don't give up. You don't lie down and die. What you do is struggle against this with all of your equipment, with whatever you have. But of course, you don't stand a chance. That's Kafkaesque. End quote. Such is the case for the hapless protagonist of After Hours, Paul Hackett, played by Griffin Dunn, a lonely Manhattan office worker who winds up meeting a woman, Marcy Franklin, played by Rosanna Arquette, at a cafe one random night. Intrigued by his encounter with Marcy and wanting to have some fun, Paul and Marcy arrange to hook up later in Soho, and so begins Paul's wild night filled with unexpected surprises, kooky characters, and an underlying sense of menace that permeates around every dark street corner. After Hours came about during a period of frustration in Martin Scorsese's career. Following the release of his 1982 film The King of Comedy, starring Robert De Niro, which received positive reviews from critics but bombed at the box office, only grossing $2.5 million against its $20 million budget, Scorsese was preparing to direct his next feature, The Last Temptation of Christ. Although that film went into pre-production in 1983, Paramount Pictures canceled the project at the last minute, which frustrated the director to no end. He would later resume production of this film in 1987 under Universal Pictures, and the film released the following year. Scorsese's struggles with the abrupt cancellation of his film was reflected to a certain degree by the perpetually put-upon protagonist of After Hours, Paul Hackett. As Roger Ebert writes in his 2008 book Scorsese by Ebert, quote, Scorsese has suggested that Paul's implacable run of bad luck reflected his own frustration during the last Temptation of Christ experience. Executives kept reassuring him that all went well. Backers said they had the money. Paramount greenlighted it. Agents promised him it was a go. Everything was in place. And then time after time, an unexpected development would threaten everything. End quote. Following this setback, Scorsese received the After Hours script by producers Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn, which was written by screenwriter Joseph Minion. As he also notes in his conversation with Ebert in Scorsese by Ebert, the director wanted to make a film that was an exercise in style, as a way to show that Paramount hadn't killed his spirit. Speaking of the film's style, After Hours unfolds as a dark screwball comedy, gradually morphing into a bizarre, illogical nightmare for the film's protagonist, Paul Hackett. 
The film begins with Paul training a new worker at his desk, appearing utterly disengaged with showing the new office drone the ropes of their word processing work. The first glimpse of the film's heightened reality is seen in a shot where Paul leaves work, with the giant ornate brass gates of his office closing behind him, his first steps away from the numbing safety of his known world. Even with his own apartment, practically sparse and drab in its appearance, seems to reflect the dullness of his day-to-day life. It's no small wonder, then, why Paul is intrigued at the prospect of a fun evening with Marcy, whose interest is piqued upon seeing him sitting alone at a cafe, reading one of her favorite books, Tropic of Cancer, by Henry Miller. The heightened reality of the film begins to take a subtly unsettling tone when we are first introduced to Marcy. A flashing red light from outside the cafe partially illuminates her, seeming to serve as a red flag warning to us viewers and unbeknownst to Paul. The reddish walls of the cafe and even the cashier add to the weirdness as he's practicing dance moves behind the counter. When Paul returns home, he decides to call the number Marcy gave him before leaving the cafe, and they arrange to meet at the apartment she is staying in in Soho. Paul hails a cab, which zooms erratically through the city streets to his destination, during which his $20 bill accidentally flies out of the window. On the commentary track of the film's Criterion Collection Edition, Scorsese describes Paul's cab ride as his entrance into the underworld, and his lost $20 bill meaning that he has no money to pay the boatman on the river Styx. When he arrives in Soho, Paul's strange odyssey begins to take shape. During Paul's chaotic nights in town, he encounters five different women, each of whom having their own unique shade of strangeness. For now, we will focus on the first two women he meets, who are the aforementioned Marcy and her roommate, Kiki Bridges, played by Linda Fiorentino, an uninhibited sadomasochistic artist who carries herself with an aura of danger. When Paul arrives at the entrance to their apartment's building, Kiki throws down her set of keys to him. We then see a fast-moving point-of-view shot of the keys plummeting towards Paul's head. The film's cinematographer, Michael Ballhaus, who collaborated on six of Scorsese's features, including Goodfellas and The Departed, mentions on the Criterion commentary track that this was the most difficult sequence to pull off in the film, as the final result shows a total of ten quick-cutting shots of the keys falling smoothly edited by the legendary film editor and longtime Scorsese collaborator, Thelma Schoonmaker. Ebert also mentions in Scorsese by Ebert that, in an attempt to pull the shot off, the filmmakers, quote, tried fastening the camera to a board and dropping it toward Paul with ropes to stop it at the last moment. Dunn was risking his life. But the approach produced out-of-focus footage, end quote. They eventually executed the final shot we see in the film with a fast-moving crane. It is interesting to note that such inordinate effort was taken to depict an otherwise inconsequential, nondescript moment, but it does serve as an example of Scorsese's intent of shooting the film as an exercise in style. When Paul arrives in Kiki's apartment, he finds her working on a papier-mâché sculpture of a figure crouched down, arms contorted as if stricken with fear. He remarks that it reminds him of Edward Munch's painting, The Scream. When he inadvertently soils his white shirt with a papier-mâché mixture, Kiki gives him a black pinstripe shirt to wear. It appears that the underworld that is Soho is beginning to sink its hooks 
into him. Both Kiki and Paul have a peculiar exchange when he compliments her figure. She replies that she doesn't have any scars, while some other women are covered from head to toe in them. When Marcy finally meets with Paul again, he later learns that she was a burn victim, finding in her bag some second-degree burn ointment and a medical textbook titled Reconstruction and Rehabilitation of the Burned Patient, the contents of which freaks him out. He also notices a set of small scars on Marcy's hip. Kiki's remarks about women with scars not only alludes to the emotional and mental scarring that the other women in the film carry, but also the emotional-slash-mental scars that Marcy appears to contend with as well. Just when it appears that Paul and Marcy are going to get intimate, she acts rather distant and uneasy, in one instance disclosing to him that she survived a horrible sexual assault, and in another instance, she bursts into tears when they kiss. After watching the film, it appears that her reticent behavior also stems from the fact that, unbeknownst to Paul, she was also dating someone else, a local bartender that Paul later encounters, Tom, played by John Hurd. When Paul and Marcy go to a nearby diner, steam rises from the manhole covers and wafts over the damp streets, the bowels of the underworld just bubbling beneath the surface. There is a bit of a contrast between Kiki and Marcy, as the two women seem to embody chaos in rather distinct ways. With Marcy, you get the sense that part of her uneasiness stems from her likely wrestling with her inner turmoil, being interested in Paul on one hand, but also trying to move past her previous trauma and conflicting feelings on the other, and on top of all that, seeing someone else at the moment. Marcy being a burn victim slash survivor also adds to the hellish vibe of Paul's evening, a figure forged in flame, too dangerous for Paul to handle. She even has a skull head tattoo on her inner thigh, another deadly warning sign. Regarding Kiki, she is someone who more openly embraces chaos and darkness, scantily dressed in black and having no reservations about being partially nude in front of a complete stranger. Kiki's aloof presence also positions her as more of an assertive figure than Paul. She is someone in complete command of her own sexuality and desires. For example, at one point where Paul later returns to her apartment, thinking that she was the victim of a burglary, he finds her tied up, yet completely unbothered. It turns out that she was just in the middle of some BDSM play with her boyfriend, a hulking, leather-clad brute named Horst, played by Will Patton. Griffin Dunn notes in the Criterion Commentary track that Paul is a very sexually frustrated person, and we see that throughout his one-night odyssey. Kiki's papier-mâché statues of male figures symbolizes this as well, as by the end of the night, his fears and struggles will later crystallize and entomb him. After ultimately rebuffing Marcy, Paul makes his way to a nearby bar, which is tended by Tom, her current boyfriend. When Paul goes to use the bathroom, he finds a drawing of a shark biting a man's erect penis a symbol of his dashed booty call hopes for the evening. 
Perhaps the drawing could also be a bit of subtle forewarning for Paul, as the waitress of the bar, Julie, played by Terry Garr, is quite interested in jumping his bones. Similar to Paul, Julie also hates her job, although Paul seems to be more apathetic to his work more than anything. But at one point, freaks out at him when she perceives his questions about her second job as a copier to be condescending. Julie appears to be firmly stuck in the 1960s with her canary yellow dress, beehive hairdo, and white go-go boots, and her apartment also reflects what seems to be her preferred decade. Her bed is also surrounded by mouse traps. One hapless critter gets caught at one point as Julie tries to put the moves on her guest, which he ultimately rejects. In another instance, which subtly pokes fun at Paul's frustrations, he stumbles upon a punk rock club. Failing to make his way past the packed crowd of mohawks and leather, he almost gets his head shaved at one point before finally escaping. All the while, the song Pay to Come by the punk rock band Bad Brains is blasting, which is perhaps a sly dig at Paul hopelessly falling short of his intended booty call goals for the evening. Martin Scorsese also makes a cameo appearance in this scene as he swings a spotlight from the rafters, the all-seeing eye, an embodiment of the forces that seem to be conspiring against the beleaguered protagonist. Towards the end of Paul's rather eventful evening, he encounters two more women who leave their marks on the man. First is Gail, played by Catherine O'Hara, an ice cream vendor who drives a Mr. Softy truck. She appears to be helpful to Paul at first, inviting him to her apartment and allowing him to use her phone to call for help. However, she toys with him as he tries to remember the phone number he's trying to call, constantly interrupting him for no reason at all. Shortly afterwards, after offering to drive him home, she stumbles upon a wanted poster of his face. Julie sketched his face earlier, unbeknownst to him, and six a neighborhood watch mob on the poor guy, who flees in terror. Compared to the troubled Marcy, the dangerous Kiki, and a lovelorn and stuck-in-time Julie, Gail comes off as more of a Joker type of figure. An agent of chaos who initially gives Paul a hard time for nothing more than her own amusement, only then to quickly instigate a full-on mob on the guy, wanting to watch his world burn. It's as if Gale's amusement of Paul's desperation shifts into bloodlust, as another agent of this Soho underworld, she will not allow this man to escape. There is a rather interesting quality that four of the five women Paul meets share. After Hours is also Hitchcockian in its sensibilities, specifically the wronged man trope that is featured in several of his films. But there is also the inclusion of blonde women in Scorsese's film, which is also another Hitchcockian element. Film critic Sheila O'Malley points this out in her essay for the Criterion edition of the film, titled After Hours, No Exit. O'Malley writes, quote, The most obvious allusion to the master of suspense is the presence of four blonde women who lure Paul into the tangled web of his fate. From his anxiety-warped perspective, they're all out to get him, end quote. She refers to the destabilizing Marcy, the waitress Julie, the mob instigating Gail, and as for the fourth blonde woman, 
She writes, quote, Quiet June holds out a hand, but the escape she crafts for Paul is an existential prison of his own, end quote. More on this in a moment. Paul manages to elude the mob and winds up back at the now empty club he visited earlier, where he meets the fifth and final woman of his unexpected odyssey, another papier-mâché sculptor named June, played by Verna Bloom. When Paul approaches June, who appears more motherly compared to the previous women he met, he plays a song on the jukebox titled, Is That All There Is? by Peggy Lee the song alluding to his failed, nonsensical night out on the town. At his wit's end, he wearily asks June to join him for a drink and just to talk. June takes him downstairs to the basement, which is also her studio. She asks him why he's being nice to her, and he replies, quote, I want to live. I just want to live, end quote as he lays her head on her chest and she consoles him. To me, it seems that June's question speaks to the loneliness that she appears to have experienced prior to Paul's arrival. She sits alone in the empty club, with only the bartender as her company. I imagine that June, similar to Paul, desires something new that would take her away from her familiar routine, but as a denizen of the underworld, she has no choice but to remain rooted forever cast in place like her sculptures. When the mob comes knocking on the club doors, she ingeniously casts him in plaster and conceals him in a papier-mâché sculpture, thus entombing slash entrapping him in his existential prison. After the mob leaves the basement upon failing to find Paul, June also leaves him behind but only intending to do so for a few moments. While she's away, two burglars sneak in from a manhole cover above and smuggle Paul away along with a few valuables. They drive off into the dawn, but Paul, still encased in plaster, falls out of the back of their van right in front of the brassy ornate gates of his workplace. He rises from his plaster cocoon, reborn and ready to start the day and his life anew by going straight back to his desk only to be greeted by his computer monitor with the words, Good morning, Paul, displayed. No sleep, no relief, no changes. The after hours have ended, and the work hours have returned. Roll credits as the camera sweeps in and out of the rows of desks and offices. A Kafka-esque loop? A spiral, maybe. An existential prison, nonetheless. Roger Ebert described one idea for the ending of After Hours in Scorsese by Ebert, in which the burglars would keep driving away while Paul was still trapped in their truck. Ebert writes that Scorsese said he showed that version of the ending to his father, who was angry and said, you can't let him die. Film director Michael Powell echoed Scorsese's father's sentiments. Ebert writes, quote, Powell kept repeating that Paul not only had to live at the end, but to end up back at his office. And so he does, although after Paul returns to the office, close examination of the very final credit footage shows that he has disappeared from his desk. End quote. To me, given the weird night that Paul has endured, combined with the indifference to his own job, the character is already dead in a way. 
Here's a man who ends his journey in much of the same way as he began it, completely unfulfilled professionally, sexually, and personally. Paul disappearing from his desk during the end credits is him being absorbed into the fabric of his depressing job. Just another faceless drone, ready to endure more of this same routine. Perhaps his Kafkaesque odyssey was a way to remind him of his minuscule place in the world, that for all of his efforts and desires for something new, he does not really stand a chance. Or perhaps next time he should really be more careful about keeping his money in hand for the next cabbie that will take him to the underworld, or at least have enough change for the subway ride back home. And so that concludes this week's episode of Do The Film Thing. And once again, thank you so much for listening and following the show. And if you enjoy this episode, please tune in next Sunday for episode 8 of season 1. You can follow Do The Film Thing on Instagram at Do The Film Thing, and you can catch the show on various podcasting platforms, including Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and others. And you can also email the show at dothefilmthing at gmail.com. Once again, my name is Victor Omoyo, and remember to do the film thing always. Always.